0: Last week, I quoted in the sermon from Peter Lyhart, where he says, Renewal movements always look pathetic. Renewal movements always look pathetic. What he, what he means by that is they begin in places that are small, ordinary. Places where resources are sparse. Elisha, Elisha's back in Gilgal. And we're told there's famine in the land. And with famine comes what? Starvation, sparseness, people praying for rain, vigilance against fungi and weeds and anything that would steal away uh, the fruit of the vine. Famine also meant raiders who would steal the harvest for their own. It meant many skirmishes, local wars, burned fields sometimes. It also meant subjugation, slavery. The the lack of a harvest was a matter of survival and death. And in the ancient world, and still in parts of our world today, in some marginal places and economies, providing for daily bread can take up most of your income and consume all of your thoughts. We we aren't told here in this part of 2 Kings how severe the famine is we aren't even told how long it lasted, but there is famine. And in the Bible, the the physical reality of famine is often equated to, or the result of, spiritual realities. Like famine in Israel often indicated a deeper famine. A famine of God's presence. And thus famine is something that happens in our world and God works through it. Like He gains our attention through our stomachs. Now, let's stop for a second. Now, food is sustenance. Like, if you've heard, the like, food is fuel. Like, if you're a paleo guy, it is that. It is sustenance. It's fuel. It keeps us going. But it's also delight. It's something we desire. We, we can find ourselves thinking about food, dreaming about food, longing for food. And when there is no food, we feel the lack. Our stomachs growl. We feel weakness. Our emotions then start to get involved and we get hangry. Anyone? You might feel that way right now. How do you deal with lack? Most of us don't know about lack of food. We know lack of sleep. Many of you right now know deeply lack of sleep. I know lack of sleep. I've been having um, a difficult time with sleep of, uh, as of late, and it can be overburdening lack of joy, happiness, a lack of relationships. Where you lack friendship. We we preached on friendship several weeks ago. I keep hearing stories about this from different people. A lack of peace. What do you do when you're not sustained in these places? Food, sleep, happiness, relationships, fulfillment, peace. Now hold on to that for a second because it's a vital question for us this morning. You see, the sons of the prophets are hungry. They are In the midst of the famine, these are the men of God. They are the prophets who proclaim the word of God to the people of God. They brought the presence of the Lord with them. They called the people to repentance and renewal in the midst of famine. The northern kingdom is far from God. How do we know? They're worshiping idols. And the Bible says that worshiping idols is a fruitless, famine-like enterprise. It's futile. Isaiah 44 is one passage that describes this. I'm going to read a decent section of this. Hear God's word from Isaiah 44. Hear this. All those who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. In other words, they are futile. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, and they shall be put to shame together. The, the ironsmith takes cutting, a cutting tool, works it over the coals. He, he fashions it with a hammer and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water, and is faint. The, the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it, marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of the man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees in the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread and he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol, falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire Over the other half, he eats the meat. He roasts it and says, I'm satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see In their hearts, so that it cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also break bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Now, this passage gets at something for our passage. Idolatry is fruitless. It sounds like a famine, like the worship of these idols. Now notice, even with all the fullness, they have bread, they have fire, they have fuel, but they are spiritually starving. They are deluded into thinking that their idol worship has produced their sustenance, and their bellies fool them. When things are going so well, we are so sustained, we can be fooled. And this is Israel. And the physical famine becomes this thing that God uses to get Israel's attention. We see it time and time again in their story. But notice, the sons of the prophets are also experiencing the results of this. They are hungry. When Elijah sees that they are coming, he says, Put on the big pot. And they appeal to him as host to feed them. And Elijah here, like last week we talked about God as host, Elijah here again acts as host. He calls his servant to set the pot and make them stew. There are these times, right, when stew just just hits. And there are other times when it just doesn't. Like we used to do soup lunch here twice a month for month upon month. Now, none of you remember this. This was before. I don't think anyone's here today that was there at that time. Oh, the cops. Us, we know it. And on the 12th time we were having soup, Cobs never went, so don't, don't let that fool you. They dipped out. But I ate that soup. Danette ate that soup. Like, There's times, though, when soup hits. Like when Danette breaks out that green chili stew, y'all, on a hot, cold day, it hits. Here, the hope is, is that the stew will hit because these men are hungry. They need it, and they want it, and the stew will sustain them. Like, there's this thing about food. We often want it. We know we need it. We aren't machines, we're desiring creatures. So, to make this stew have some flavor, one of the sons of the prophets goes out, gathers herbs. He stumbles upon a wild vine, some vestiges of ungathered fruit. Remember, we're in famine. Fruit on the vine is not always the case. Habakkuk describes a famine like this. There's no blossoms on the fig tree, no fruit on the vine. The olive crop fails. The fields produce no food. There's no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls. And so to stumble upon a wild vine with fruit is foraging at its finest. He cuts off the gourds. He's excited. He comes, his hands are full, returning, bearing fruit. It's prepared. It's it's thrown into the the soup. And the soup is then served to famished men. And they begin to eat it up, but something doesn't taste right. Have you experienced this? The the rancid taste of meat or fruit? Notice the man says, "Oh, oh, man of God, there's death in this pot. Death in the pot. Death in the land produces death in the pot. Let's stop there for a second. What do you do for sustenance, renewal, when all there is is death in the pot? When death resides in your proverbial pot, what do you do? Now, the Isaiah passage says what we do is we start We start making idols. We stop worshiping things other than God to get the death out of the pot. And what's tricky about this is we're often oblivious to it. The sneaky thing about our idolatry is like Israel is often an intermixing of some of this and some of that. Like for Israel, it was Yahweh plus Baal and Asherah. Like like what can it hurt to have a, a little bit more security? Let's throw that in the pot. It's true for you and me, too. We often don't worship an idol alone. We worship it, and we worship Jesus. We worship our security, and we worship Jesus. We worship our comfort, and we worship Jesus. We worship having experiences, and we worship Jesus. We throw our power around and seek it out through the name of Jesus. And it's all death in the pot. If someone doesn't point it out to us, we'll be happy going along guzzling it down into our guts, unaware of the poisonous results. Death in the pot. We we need... To pour this out, right? If there's rancid food in the thing that you're making, you need to start over. Like, that's what the other curious thing is about idolatry. It's when one fails, we dump it out and find another. And there's always another. Now here, if this is your food supply and you're in famine, this is all that you had. And you would be in trouble pouring it out. So the man cries to Elisha, there's death in the pot. He knows that the man of God can renew this pot. And consequently, don't miss this, they can be renewed. And so Elijah asks for some flour. He takes it, throws it in the pot. The soup is poured out again. And what? The men are refreshed. Here through Elisha, God provides, and Elisha is always the harbinger of renewal. In chapter 2 of uh, 2 Kings, water is purified by Elisha's word. In chapter 3, water is given from nowhere to sustain an army and animals. The animals of three different kings, the armies of three different kings. In chapter 5, we'll see Elijah providing the water of cleansing. In chapter 6, he gives water to Jehoram. Like Jesus, Elisha is never without food or water. Because food and water renew, and Yahweh is the Lord of renewal when the sons of the prophets lack sustenance. And all they have is poisonous gourds and death in the pot. The Lord of, the re- of renewal shows up, provides a little flour, purifies the pot, and renews the sons of the prophets. And life comes to the pot only when it is brought to Elisha. And so the first application this morning, bring your poisonous gourds and death-filled pots to the Lord, for he is the Lord of renewal. You've been doing Jesus and you've only tasted some semi-rancid stew, bring it all to the Lord. You look around at your life, and you feel that sting of death. You, you feel that empty, that void. You taste the poison of your past. Bring it all to the Lord. And you will discover what? There is now no harm in the pots. There is now no harm in the pot, for the Lord of renewal has brought life. My buddy Chris shared this verse with uh, several of us today some from Psalm 107. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. And verse 19, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them. From their distresses. Cry to the Lord this morning, City Perez, in your distresses, in your death filled pots. The second scene a man comes from Baal Shalishah. Now, it's unsure if this place is near to Gilgal or if he's just a man with provisions. That word, Baal uh, Shalishah, means the Lord of the three things. And he comes bringing, we're told, fruits, part of a new harvest in the middle of famine. Just let that kind of stick with you. It's first fruits, we're told. So that would be a a new harvest in the middle of famine. Not normal. And part of the new harvest he brings is 20 loaves and some fresh ears of barley. Those ears of barley would have been cooked over oil and then ate unprocessed. He stuffs all of this in a sack. And here's our link between the festival of first fruits, and it links us to Leviticus 23 in our passage. Israel is prohibited in Leviticus 23 from eating bread or roasted grain or even new growth until the first sheath is offered to Yahweh in the sanctuary. Here, this man, the Lord of the three things, brings his first fruits. The only other time that Hebrew word is used is Leviticus 23, not to the sanctuary, but to Elisha. Elisha represents the Lord of the harvest. Elisha represents Yahweh. We talked about this last week, how Elisha is a type of temple, a place where the presence of God resides. In the northern kingdom, remember, there is no temple. So the first fruits are brought to Elisha who represents it. Now, to clue us in a little more to this, the Passover that Elijah provides the Shunammite woman in resurrecting her son is followed by a Pentecost, the Feast of the Firstfruits, and this will lead to our sermon in the, uh, later on down the series after Easter, the preparing of the ingathering of the nations, which Pentecost symbolizes with the cleansing of the Gentile Naaman. Now, notice, 20 loaves and some ears or grain, are all that is stuffed in this sack. They are first fruits. Their first fruits first fruit is a sign of what? More to come. But they're offering a sacrifice, right? I mean, if there is a famine and you bring the first fruits to the Lord for the sons of the prophets, there might not be any more for you or your family. Like like if you have a sack of groceries and you're giving it away, but you know that Within that sack of groceries, there's not enough for you and for everyone else. What do you do? I mean, I'm tempted to hold on to it. Like most of us feel that light load of bags half empty. There's just a little bit right now in my bag. What do we do when we don't have enough or when we aren't enough? If, if sustenance is what's needed, renewal then we tell ourselves we just need to rally. And we attempt this rallying by our own means, in our own way, in our own strength, and then we keep finding ourselves in these places where we're weary and dissatisfied again and again, and we can't rally anymore. We get to this place where we're living by this ethic of scarcity, right? There isn't enough for everyone. Half-filled bags means if I give any away, there won't be enough for me. Death in the pot, not enough in the bag. I want to press this a little bit more. Okay? This comes from uh, a guy named Chuck DeGroat. <clears throat> the poet, Robert Bly, tells this story about our lives. It's a compelling kind of metaphor. The story goes like this. There's this long, uh, long invisible bag that we drag around behind us. My version goes like this. Sometime early in our childhood, we begin to realize that the world can be a difficult place and that it's not enough and that we too aren't enough in this world, right? Mom says, Ben, good boys, don't get angry. Dad says, Elsie, you can't leave the house with your hair like that. What will people think? Or in Madeline's case, our parents are too busy to say much to us at all. Mom and dad aren't actively trying to hurt us, but as kids, we are not, like, we can't see the larger perspective. So Ben puts his anger and he stuffs it into an invisible bag. That's where he stuffs all his not-so-pleasant experiences. The parts of our world, the parts of ourselves that we, we don't want the world to see That's what we put in the bag. Elsie puts some of her free spiritedness in the bag. Madeline puts her young, innocent, fun loving, attention starved self into the bag. And she concentrates on keeping her parents and siblings happy. Now, each of our stories is different. We put in the bag what our families, our friends, our culture deems unacceptable. By high school, that bag has grown. Right, The pressures of late elementary school, middle school, have caused now teenagers to stuff large parts of themselves into a bag, and they've developed kind of this split, this internal split, split. right? The, the bad is tucked away, the good becomes the public persona, and all those things are then praised by their caregivers, This is what David Benner says. At some point in childhood, we make this powerful discovery that we can manipulate the truth about ourselves. Through coping and choosing, we develop a persona, and we hide behind it. Now, for most of us, even the most well-adjusted of us, we grow to midlife, and the bag is so heavy that it begins to break. The world demands things from us in our relationships, situations, and we're forced to deal with what's in the bag. This is what Frederick Buchner says, life batters and shapes us in all sorts of ways before it's done, but those original selves with which we were born with, and I believe we continue in some measure to be no matter what, Ourselves, which do not echo the holiness of their origin. I believe that's what Genesis suggests, is that there is this before sin self, a print of God's thumbprint upon us. And that's the most essential part of who we are. But it gets buried deep, deep within all our sins and personas. But midlife requires you look in the bag. And then life becomes complicated. For Madeline, that break came when she had her third child. Exhausted by the demands of her many volunteer activities and the rigors of being a mom, she lashed out at her husband saying, I quit. At that point, Madeline had a choice to make. Either she could open the bag and explore, or she could ignore the bag and continue to live Out of this false place. And that is the choice. We can either open the bag, hear me, with all that part of your story. All those pieces of who you are now that have formed you and shaped you in the now. You can either take it, open it up, and bring it to the Lord. And give it to him to do what? Produce renewal. Fruitfulness to produce change and transformation in your life. This is what the Lord of the three things does. It's an act of faith. Elisha takes it and multiplies it. He brings life into what's in the bag. When the loaves are brought to Elisha, they are multiplied to feed many. I love that part. There is no harm in the pot. And there is multiple. He says, say it to them, uh, uh, pre- present it before them. He tells them again to present those 20 loaves before them, and there will be enough. There is enough, and there is no harm. So much life left that when the sons of the prophets eat, there's leftovers. Now, hear this. Your enoughness comes from the Lord. He is the only one who can take what's in the bag and produce something out of it that gives life to someone else. So, this is the second point of application. Bring your half filled bags and your first fruits, all of yourself, to the Lord. And this leads us to Jesus, I think. Jesus is the better Elijah who invited us to drink from never ending fountains, never ending fountains of his living spirit that we're told fills parched lands with water. We're called to feast on the nourishment of his body, the living bread. He is the Lord of the feast. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is also the meal that he gives us. He's the Lord of the renewal. And he always comes, remember, he comes gentle and lowly into these places. He is the first fruit of what God intends to do in the world. Namely, bring life to pots full of death and half-filled bags of false selves and not-enoughness to life and reproduction. This is where renewal begins in unimpressive places. Where there's famine in the land. Where the vines produce only poisonous gourds. Where there's death in pots only 20 loaves of bread, some heads of grain, and this long black bag that I continue to fill with my broken story. And we are to bring all of that, our pots, our bodies, our first fruits, our whole selves, our long bags, and give them to the Lord. Because he's the Lord of renewal. It's only when these things are brought to Elisha That renewal comes. Friends, you're invited this morning to give yourself to the Lord. You're invited to experience here at City Press his renewal in the waters of baptism and his sustaining love around a table of communion. Jesus renews you in giving, in the giving of your first fruits, even if they're meager. And unimpressive. He he renews your labor when it only seems to produce death, right? Think about that guy who goes out and comes back with all those gourds full. And then only to discover he almost poisoned all the sons of the prophets with it. Your labor and offering are never in vain if it's in the Lord's hands. I quoted from Habakkuk earlier. Habakkuk is a renewal and revival book. Habakkuk starts with all these questions of God, and he looks around. And he only sees violence in the world. And God's answer to that violence seems to be exile. And he's having this crisis of faith, and then he encounters the Lord of renewal. We're told that he watches. He sits back. He asks his questions of the Lord. Then he sits back like a watchman on a tower and watches to see what the Lord will do. And by the end of the book, he says, Though the fig tree does not blossom. Though there are no fruit on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. You see, Habakkuk has learned that even his empty stomach is a place where God can fill. That really is a place that only God can fill. He's been revived from the Lord to see that the Lord is all that he needs. Renewal moments begin in these pathetic places. I want to end with this. I don't know how many of you have been paying attention to what's happening in Kentucky, Asbury, Presbyterians, and Wesleyans. Like, not not together. We're Presbyterian. Presbyterian. And we might think, naturally, that Asbury would be maybe a more pathetic place. Wrongly. This chapel service began over 10 days ago. Just an ordinary chapel service. It's lasted now 10 days or more, maybe. I really wasn't paying any attention to it. I grew up in a revival tradition that threw revivals, like you could throw one. The spirit blows where it wills. So I, I didn't pay any mind until I started hearing the same story and the same story and the same story. You know what that story was? That this thing was somewhat was ordered. Like there was or some organization, but it wasn't planned. That it was built on the preaching of the Word, that there was a response of repentance, faith, and renewal. That there was worship that was overflowing out of the Word, and it was about Jesus. It wasn't about the Spirit, because the Spirit is shy and is always pointing to Jesus. It was about Jesus. And about what the life that Jesus brings. And the people that went said it was quiet. It was serious, but it was joyful. And it was full, full not of like pressure, but just a gentle, quiet spirit. Where one man said, I, I was there for 10 hours, and it, it just felt like I was there for 15 minutes. where does it start? With students. Gen Z students. Gen Z students whose pots have maybe been filled with death in their own empty bags. This is what one student at Asbury said. What seems to be happening is we're receiving a tangible peace from Jesus for a generation with unprecedented anxiety. This is... He said, new wine in a new wineskin, a restorative sense of belonging in this room with other students for a generation living through an epidemic of loneliness, a protective humility. That's the other word that was used to describe it, a humbleness for those who have suffered abuses of power, a focus on participatory adoration and praise for those who live in constant digital Distraction. This renewing movement, maybe. We don't know. It's a first fruit, who knows. It's, it's spread to other campuses, by the way. Hope College, Sanford, Lee University, Cedarville, the University of Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky. If you're wondering what to do with this, I don't know. I read something from Martin Lloyd-Jones on renewal movements He says, the business of the watchmen is not merely to look for enemies. He's talking about revival, by the way. When a city was hard-pressed and besieged, the watchmen had to keep their eyes on the horizon to see if there might be some relieving force on the way, to see if some friend were gathering his forces and coming to attack the enemy from behind. Keeping a lookout was relief. Will there be deliverance? Watchmen upon the walls waiting for good news. Habakkuk is a watchman who goes into the watchtower and waits for God to bring good news. This is the essential part of the procedure, according to Lloyd-Jones. What should you do? You should be waiting. You should be looking. You should be watching. Is the Spirit stirring And go with eagerness to pray that it might continue, that it might increase, that it might go on. If, if, Lloyd-Jones says, if we hear of something that is just a smoldering wick, we must pray that the Lord would burst it into a flame. Friends, maybe this is a first fruit of revival amongst a generation of students like my students. Like the sons of the prophets, who were probably this very age, who just showed up with their empty bags, their death-filled pots, eager for the Lord to fill them and heal them. And the Lord is the Lord of renewal. He's the Lord of the harvest. And I hope that he's preparing a generation that will be sent out, having fed on Christ, and experienced him of a fount overflowing with his spirit, They are now being readied to be sent out to gather his harvest. So I pray that you will join me in praying that that would be so. Let's pray. God, we come to you. You are the Lord of renewal and the Lord of the harvest. We live, uh, no doubt. We all live. I know I live with famine and death filled pots and a long black bag and i I need your renewal, so do we so we start this morning just with surrender we we come to you today and offer ourselves to you that you might be uh, that we might see you as the true the one that removes the death with the flower of your love the one who takes our meager first fruits and multiplies them for ourselves and for others That you would start this renewal in this pathetic place of my own brokenness in my own heart. That you would renew me. That you would renew us. I think that's what you're doing in Kentucky. I don't know. But I want to be a watchman. And I want to pray that you would fan that little flame into a blazing fire that would rescue a generation of students who do not know your name. That it would be a fire that would blaze, not in our nation, but in our world. We pray that you would protect it, that it would continue to be this humble, gentle stirring of your spirit. That it would be life-giving to those who receive it. And that it would then produce a fruit of love and justice in our world. Salvation of souls. Lives caught up in meaning. Fulfillment. So use your word this morning to infect our hearts with your renewing power. And help us to have faith to then offer our lives in response to that to you. That you might fill us and send us out. Because you're the Lord of renewal and the Lord of the harvest. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, King. Amen.